Welcome to the Italian Renaissance Podcast, where we discuss the culture and art of 15th and 16th century Italy. I'm your host, Lawrence Cianangeli. Andiamo avanti. Renaissance people. On the fourth Thursday in November in the United States, we hold a feast holiday by the name of Thanksgiving. Somewhat odd holiday in which we gorge ourselves into oblivion on horribly dry turkey, moistened only by the broth and stale breadcrumbs that we pack inside of its butt. I will be villainized for telling you people to get your nasty green bean casseroles with those awful crunchy onions away from me, and whoever thought that sweet potatoes needed further sweetening with marshmallows, I hate to disappoint you. But this is the tradition, and traditions do not easily fade, and I am sure it has something to do with this happy little meeting of pilgrims and Native Americans, but I must admit that I am skeptical of that history. So, with a smidge of holiday free time, and I only mean a smidge, I wanted to produce a conversation that spoke to these ideas about tradition and about eating. Now, the traditional Thanksgiving feast happened after the Renaissance in the 17th century, so I'm being abstract in my application here. Still, these two things, tradition and feast, it made me think of a very obvious contender for a podcast episode, A Last Supper. And there's one in particular that comes to mind that I think you might know about, and that is The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. Before we get to Leonardo, I want to stress that his Last Supper was indeed one in a long line of tradition. These are often referred to as a cenacolo, and I may use that term interchangeably. The Last Supper, cenacolo, same thing. What is happening in a cenacolo? Well, this is the last meal that Christ has with his disciples before his crucifixion. This moment appears in all four Gospels of the Bible of the New Testament, the Gospels being the accounts according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that tell the life, execution, and resurrection of Christ, the the very basis of Renaissance Christian belief. The Last Supper was a meal that took place during the week of Passover and is the very textual basis for what is known as the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the Holy Communion that is central to the ceremony of the Catholic Mass, and that is drawn directly from this episode from the four Gospels. Christ tells his disciples that the bread represents his body, that the wine represents his blood. I remember growing up that I was given grape juice, not wine, when I was given the blood of Christ to drink. You must be able to imagine my delight. Now, There's another essential moment in this episode in the Bible, and that is when Christ announces that one of his disciples will betray him. He is talking about Judas Iscariot. And if we think about Dante's Divine Comedy, the Inferno, Judas is placed in the center of Lucifer's three mouths in the deepest part of hell. Dante at least deemed his betrayal to earn him the most prominent place in hell. 
This moment from the Gospels, not Dante, is of extreme importance for discussing Leonardo's work, which we're going to come back to, the betrayal. So keep that in your minds. So we have to understand this essential biblical moment as foregrounding Leonardo da Vinci, as in there's a long tradition of imagery that comes before Leonardo of the Last Supper. But then what does he do to that that makes it so famous? That is what our discussion is about today. If you recall our concluding episode on Renaissance Venice, you might remember that Veronese's Feast in the House of Levi was actually painted as a Last Supper. But the Holy Inquisition put him on trial for possible heresy due to the unholy nature of his subjects. That's in 1573, almost a century after Leonardo painted his in 1495. So Leonardo is neither the beginning nor the end of this tradition, but he is the most important stop along the way. Canonically speaking, Christ was crucified around 33 CE, the Common Era. Early Christian art appears in Rome in the late 2nd and 3rd centuries. Christianity was fledgling at this point in the Roman Empire, but without derailing too much, folks, it has to be stated that in all likelihood they were tolerated by the empire, not just imperially sanctioned under Constantine later. Okay, so there's this weird myth that Christians lived underground and couldn't produce art, and that's not quite accurate. Still, their public arts did appear mostly in burial places like the catacombs of Callistus in Rome, which gives us the earliest moments of Christian iconography that will carry through to the Renaissance and beyond, including my own dining room growing up where there was a Last Supper on the wall, right? Here in the catacombs of Callistus, we see a Last Supper. There's only seven figures. Christ is presumably in the center, and he's explaining the Eucharist. It is the moment. This is my body. This is my blood. As always, look for these images on our social media channels. Keep in mind, this image has aged so much and is heavily worn and damaged, as you might expect, of an 1800-year-old catacomb painting. But this is really the earliest known example, right? Third century. By the 6th century, the Roman Empire was established as the Christian Byzantine Empire that was ruled out of Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul. Emperor Justinian had re-consecrated the Church of San Apollinare Nuovo, which is adorned with Byzantine-style mosaics. This is in Ravenna in Italy, even though the Byzantine Empire is ruled out of modern-day Turkey. Here, too we see the Last Supper with Christ, with all 12 apostles. One apostle is curiously shown with his face, sort of half obscured by the other apostles. That might be Judas, where the idea of not showing him is meant to dishonor him by like denying you access to his face. We see bread and fish on the table. We all know the Jesus fish, right? This is going to be a symbol that's going to come back. This work shows continuity from the catacombs of Rome, but in the Byzantine style. It's like a trajectory, right? I'm setting the groundwork for this tradition. And notice how the apostles appear to react to something, right? Thinking about Leonardo in the future. The older Peter looks to Christ, but he points away. And the others, their gaze is actually turning to the right. Maybe 
they're looking at Judas, this sort of figure that is separated from the others. It's really hard to tell which of the, the two figures, the obscured one or the sort of separated one. It's hard to tell which is Judas. Going from the 3rd century to the 6th century, by the time we arrive in the Quattrocento, in the Renaissance in Italy, keeping in mind that Leonardo is a Florentine, there were already at least four major Last Supper paintings within his artistic circle. A magnificent hidden gem to see in Florence when you guys visit and you want to get away from the crowds and see some art that nobody is visiting is Andrea del Castaño's Last Supper in Santa Apollonia. That is not Santa Polinare in Ravenna. That is Santa Apollonia in Florence. And that was painted between 1445 and 1450. Okay, so now we're 45 to 50 years before Leonardo's Last Supper. This fresco will dazzle you with this illusionistic marble rendering, alarmingly beautiful harpies on each end of the table, and of course, the apostles and Christ, with Judas clearly identifiable now by being alone on the other side of the table. That is, our side of the table. And then you have a series of Three Last Suppers by one of my personal favorite painters, Domenico Ghirlandaio, the artist who mentored Michelangelo when he was an apprentice. The two in Florence by Ghirlandaio can be found in the Church of Onisanti, which was done around 1480, with Judas also on our side of the table, and San Marco in Florence, not the Venetian San Marco, which was done around 1486, all of which are predating Leonardo's Last Supper. That is to say that he is in dialogue with a tradition of art that came before him. And as is Italian Renaissance tradition, these paintings are all done in a monastic context. The room's called refectories, that is the dining room for monks, which is very appropriate, of course, for this subject. Leonardo left Florence around 1482 to work in the court of Ludovico Sforza, the Duke of Milan, beginning what is referred to as his first Milanese period, his first period in Milan. By 1495, under the commission of Ludovico Sforza, he had begun his work on the Last Supper for the refectory of the church Santa Maria delle Grazie in Milan. Considering Leonardo as an innovator, a genius, we say, an inventor, a very meticulous, detailed man, fresco painting was not the most versatile way for him to paint in the obsessive manner in which he did. If we think about the Mona Lisa, which he reworked over and over again and traveled with him all the way to France, where he died, he was not content with a simple uh, one-time working of a painting. He often liked to rework these surfaces by adding additional details or changing the composition. He would work in oil paints, which allowed for frequent changes, because you can work oil painting longer. Fresco does not allow frequent changes. We see the Last Supper today in a very terrible condition, and this is in part a result of Leonardo's experimentation with trying to make fresco more malleable to his own working practice. Dear listeners, it did not work, okay? Because you're painting onto wet plaster, you need water-friendly pigments, and he began with a base layer of lead white, 
in order to make the color layers on top more vibrant. He was going for sharp vibrancy. Then he used tempura paint. That is um, not Japanese cuisine. That is a type of paint in which pigments are mixed with egg yolk. And they're typically used on wood panel painting, not fresco. In Leonardo's own lifetime, by 1517, the fresco was already accumulating dampness. The layers of paint were already flaking off and the fresco was deteriorating. It was repainted, damaged during the conquest of Napoleon in the 19th century. A door was cut out of the wall right below Christ, and the refectory was actually hit by Allied bombs during World War II in 1943. Still, despite all of this, the fresco still survives. Post-World War II, conservation gave us back more of Leonardo's own hand by removing the repaint, trying to conserve the original work, and much of what we see today in Milan is a result of this horrible process. So, we always have to approach the idea of Leonardo as a technical genius with some caution. He often failed at his own experiments, as we see here. Even though it has that subsequent history of destruction, it was already not going to work out in his own lifetime. Yet, there's something to be said about his technical design that makes this among the most important and famous paintings in the entire world. Let's Stay with us. We'll be right back. Renaissance people, if you are enjoying the Italian Renaissance podcast, I have good news. We're now active on Patreon. You can show your love for the show by becoming a patron and get access to additional resources, information, and artworks. Better yet, those who join the Renaissance Master or Renaissance Patron tier will get access to at least one additional podcast episode each month. My goal is to ensure that the main podcast remains a free, accessible source for everyone. Become a patron today through the link in the show notes to support the continued production of new episodes and help build and maintain this community. The Italian Renaissance Shop is now also active on Etsy, linked in the show notes. Sport our logo or choose from a growing selection of Italian art-inspired designs. Discounts are offered to select Patreon tiers as well. Your support has my immortal gratitude. Now, enjoy the show. Deeper. Christ is in the center of the composition. He is centralized by a very complicated and successful use of linear perspective, that Florentine quattrocento mode of recessing space. The diagonal lines are called orthogonals. They run across the ceiling, they run along the wall, and all of those orthogonals lead you directly to Christ. The design is meant to make you look at Christ. Right before him, what do we see? A fish. Just like the Jesus fish we saw in Santa Polinare, the Byzantine mosaics, and I read there is a fish in Callistus, uh, but I couldn't see it myself, frankly. Okay, the fish is coming back here. Okay, the architectural space in which you are in is being extended into the wall so that the Last Supper is happening within the continuity of your own space. 
Christ does not have a halo. Instead, three open windows behind him create an aura of light. The central one is being larger. It creates this sort of pseudo halo around his head. And of course, the three light sources represent the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in which the Son himself is positioned in the central window. His palms are open with his arms somewhat spread. This is to evoke the future, the crucifixion. Okay, he's going to be nailed to a cross. But those hands are also pointing one to a piece of bread, the other to a cup of wine. This is body and blood, the Eucharist. We're all bringing all of this back. Scripture, gospel, pictorial convention. It's all reconverging here. And what is going on with the apostles? We have four groups of three apostles each. That means controlled, symmetrical composition and dispersal of the apostles. They look like they're one unified table, but really they are divided up mathematically in a way that brings harmony to the composition. Let's not forget, groups of three evoke the Trinity, Groups of four, four groups of three, the four represents the Gospels. Leonardo is evoking precise doctrine through numerical symbolism. There are a thousand other interpretations of the repetition of three and four in this fresco. Feel free to go on a deep dive of that. These apostles are highly animated and reactionary. Judas, remember, he was on our side of the table in the Quattrocento Florentine frescoes. Judas is now among the loyal apostles. He is reaching for a piece of bread, which is actually from the Gospels. That's how we are identifying him. Leonardo is recalling specific scripture here that the monks would no doubt immediately recognize who Judas is just by looking at the composition. Now, noteworthy is that Judas is also a little darker, which shows his malice. Dark skin, unfortunately, in some Renaissance contexts for painting, is associated with evil. And most importantly, Leonardo da Vinci is giving us access to the human emotion of Christ and his apostles in the moment that Christ reveals his inevitable betrayal. Some apostles look here, they look there, they point to themselves, like, will it be me? Of course not. He wanted to make this a relatable interaction, grounded in a reality, while maintaining divinity through these larger-than-life figures and this complex symbolism and direct reference to Scripture. Leonardo himself, he wrote about the somewhat mundane aspects that his figures would need in order to closer approximate the natural environment of a meal, but also this sort of explosive moment of revelation. In his notebooks, particularly one called the Codex Forrester II, translated into English, Leonardo himself writes, I'm going to quote a translation of Leonardo's notebooks of what he said about the figures in The Last Supper. He says, about the apostles, quote, one who was drinking and left the cup in its place and turned his head downwards towards the speaker. Another twists the fingers in his hands together and turns with stern brows to his companion. Another with hands open 
showing their palms, raised his shoulders towards his ears and gapes in astonishment. Another speaks in the ear of his neighbor, and he who listens turns towards him and gives him his ear, holding a knife in one hand and in the other the bread half divided by his knife. Another, as he turns, holding a knife in his hand, overturns with this hand a glass on the table. Another rests his hand upon the table and stares. Another breathes heavily with open mouth. Another leans forward to look at the speaker and shades his eyes with his hand. Another draws himself back behind the one who is leaning forward and watches the speaker between the wall and the one who is leaning. End quote. Leonardo is spelling out these sort of moments, these turning over cups and covering the eyes and mouths agape, trying to spell out in literal words this type of humanly common action, right? Grounding these figures to relate to the monks, to the viewer who's looking at them as followers of Christ, as more like them than this sort of ethereal divine figure or figures. Thinking back to the early origins of this iconography, we can see how Leonardo has inherited a visual language. Christ, his apostles at the table, the fish, scripture, bread, wine, Eucharist. But he adapts it towards his own creative inclinations. That is the sum of what we call Renaissance humanism. That humanism is reflected in the holy figures of the apostles, the humanly nature of Christ, even though he is divine, but not given a direct halo, not, sh not shown as pure divinity. But also in Leonardo trying to show his own individualistic creative genius by applying a new technique that he thinks is really going to work out. Too bad, so sad, my poor Leonardo da Vinci. This is individualism, Renaissance humanism. So this painting was a major success in its own time, despite the deterioration. Several prints and engravings came soon after its completion, which was in 1498, and that helps give us an idea of many of the original details that are now lost or very difficult to see. With the image being spread quickly, and Leonardo was admired in his own time, he was well known in his own time, even by, by this point in the 1490s, for those interested in distinctions in periodization, this painting has often been touted as the work that officially marks the beginning of the high renaissance in Italy, which inspired future artists like Raphael, Andrea del Sarto, and many others, which really blossoms in Rome. Dear listeners, I will leave you on your feastful thoughts about this extraordinary work by Leonardo da Vinci. Many of you, I imagine, might even have a version of this in your own dining rooms, as it became a monumental image of the Christian world in light of Leonardo's humanizing innovations upon it. The Italian Renaissance Podcast is on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Patreon, and YouTube. Show your support by following and subscribing wherever you engage social media, and check out our Etsy for Podcast merch, all linked in the show notes. I want to thank you all for listening, and until next time, arrivederci.